0: Hey, uh so Justin. Yeah, what's up? You uh you are the go-to person for a lot of people. I know that to be true.
1: For for what though? What am I the go-to person for?
0: Uh, you know, like like uh <laughs> copywriting, you know. I mean for my wife, it's like the coffee, you know, <laughs> and that's that bad and my my son, it's like give him spin them around until I'm ready to throw up. So well, I, I will tell you this, uh, there are a few more steps that I need to
1: to follow. And there was a book I was checking out just, just recently you mentioned go to, it's so funny really, because I was reading this book. Yeah. It had a, it had a title uh, about being a go-to type of person. And there's a few steps I'm lacking still to become the the go-to in the copywriting field, but I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna move towards it.
0: Well, well, funny enough, I have also the book that you're referring to. Uh, I I think I read it uh, as well. It's called Be the Go-To. And ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's one. And because it is getting close to your birthday, I have a, a an early birthday present for you.
1: Oh, my God. I love it. I'm only like 10 months away. What is it?
0: Well, uh, (laughs) let's play some theme music and pay a bill, and then uh, I'll tell you all about it. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Andro Sturgeon. And I'm Justin Womack. We are the Marketing Geeks. Marketing Geeks. Look,
1: Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and... 6-1,
0: Okay, okay, so uh be the go to, man. Uh, I have here the actual person that wrote this actual book live in our virtual studio. Oh, you have her here? I do. It- okay, well, I- that's funny because I have the introductory
1: bio for that person. So I might as well just go really? ahead and introduce her then. If she's here, do it, man. Do it. <laughs> so today we have Teresa M. Lina. Uh, who has over 20 years of experience as a recognized Silicon Valley thought leader and strategist. And she's the CEO of the Lina Group, Inc., which specializes in market-dominant strategy and has been involved at Stanford University since 2006. She has served as chief strategy and marketing officer for several technology startups, has advised hundreds of companies, and began her career at Accenture, where she helped found, lead, and grow the firm's communications industry group, now a multi-million dollar business unit. Teresa is a frequent speaker and workshop leader on strategy, market leadership, innovation, and technology topics. And she is also the author of the new book, Be the Go-To, How to Own Your Competitive Market, Charge More, and Have Customers Love You for It. So please welcome to the show, Teresa Lina. How are
0: you, Teresa?
2: (laughs) Hi there. Thank you for having me.
0: How are you, Teresa?
2: I'm doing great. How are you guys?
0: Uh um, you know, I I really it's all first world problems for me. So I'm <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing better than most. For, for starters,
1: I I wanted to kind of kick off here because uh I in the intro of your book, so the book kicks off uh introduction, you talk a lot about the Apollo missions, and you were basically in fascinated by them and you you took what you saw with Apollo and with like Kennedy giving the speech that we're going to get to the moon within a 10 year window. And you've kind of taken what you learned from there kind of reverse engineered it and created an entire what I'm gonna call like a marketing program or a consulting program for business owners to grow their companies and become the go to from what you learned. Um, Can you can you talk a little bit about that experience? And what what happened there?
2: Yeah. So I, I actually grew up in NASA territory. Uh uh the the other NASA on the east coast in the in the uh southeastern part of Virginia and a lot of my neighbors parents worked for NASA and w- actually worked on the Apollo space program. So I grew up around it. It was very much in the water where we were and when I when I uh started realizing the pattern that you need to follow to become the go-to in a market. And I can talk about in a few minutes how I reverse engineered that. Um, I started realizing well, actually coincidentally and concurrently, I was running across some Apollo for some reason was back in the news. I think uh Ron Howard came out with a an HBO miniseries called From the Earth to the Moon. I watched that. I read some other articles and uh And I had met and talked with an Apollo astronaut at one point um when I was with Accenture and I started realizing that the parallels were incredibly striking, and that the 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 basic pattern was the same. But what was also interesting i I postponed writing this book for a number of years. We can talk about that later, but in the pro- in that gap between when I started working on the book and then when I picked it back up again, another pair of authors came out with an amazing book called Marketing the Moon. And I highly recommend people go check that out. It's absolutely fascinating. I, uh, and they, they did a lot of homework for me because uh, the parts of the book that, where I talk about the marketing, of, uh, or the, the marketing aspects of the Apollo space program I relied heavily on that book and some of their sources.
0: Can you give us a, a little bit of history about that? Just break that down into what what that was about. Their book? Well, yeah, and just like how why how and why they had to market it to begin with.
2: Yeah, you know, we don't really think about this, but even government programs, first of all, it it's very similar to what we run across in business is you're looking you need funding. So, Kennedy declared the moonshot. He gave a speech, and he said, and you know, and the reason for that was we were losing the race, so even to step back a little further, in the late fifties, we were in a cold in the Cold War and had been for quite some time with the Soviet Union. They were expanding their, their reach with communism. And the U.S. at the time was very concerned that they would continue to annex additional countries. So it was sort of the free world versus communism at the time in with the Cold War. And meanwhile, there was space exploration. Some of it started uh, from a military standpoint, but the U.S. and the Soviet Union were in a space race to make progress out in space. And we kept getting beat. So every time we would have, we would be trying to go for some incremental achievement. And you can think about businesses doing the same thing in a competitive market, you know, like, say, functions and features of a software uh, product. Um, every time they took an, the U.S. took an incremental step forward, the Soviet Union would beat them to it with something even bigger. So there came a point in the late 50s when, uh, or just after he got elected when, so around 19, uh 60, I guess, uh, or 61, Kennedy said to S- Vice President Johnson, go figure out what it will take to win. Like, we're not going to, let's stop messing around with all these little incremental steps. And let's just go make it happen. Let's go be clearly dominant in space as a representation of, of the free world. Uh, so Johnson went and conferred with different experts and came back and said, you know What? We have no idea quite how we'll do it. We think we can. We're not hundred percent sure. But if we put a man on the moon and bring him home alive, we've won. And so Kennedy, uh, actually, he was hesitant at first, but uh, eventually he decided, yeah, we need to do something to represent the free world and dominance in space. And so he declared the moonshot. But that was only the beginning. So after that, he had to get Congress to be willing to fund it. It was enormously expensive. I think the Panama Canal might be the only other non-military initiative that cost more than that, uh, maybe prior to the pandemic. But uh, they had to have congressional funding, they had to have the support of the public, they had to have industry behind them because NASA couldn't do this alone. They re- relied heavily. I think there were over twenty thousand external companies and organizations involved in the program, and they had to get all of these people in you know, working in lockstep and supporting this, which you know they thought could be an eight to ten year initiative. And so it took ongoing support. So they had a very very uh, proactive and intentional marketing. "Quote unquote" marketing uh, program behind this, even though technically NASA is not allowed to do what we would call marketing. It's public because the,
0: the, there had to be like influence. You had to influence certain senators. You had to influence the public to make it worthwhile to support the senators. So there, there was a there was a whole you know, and and during that time, of course, uh, there was a lot of interest in space, and there was kind of this. Uh, this feeling of renewal in America during that time where, uh, you know, kids would suddenly be wearing space helmets and uh, it would be, uh, you know, it was, it it was quite a thing. And I, I I heard stories from my mother about how when the, when the people finally, when, when the astronauts finally got to the moon, Uh, nobody was in the streets. It was like everybody, every single person was watching this uh, incredible event. But I want to ask you, because of course there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. (laughs) What what, what do you say to people who say there is no moon? (laughs) (laughs) That's the best one.
2: (laughs) You know, It's so difficult to have irrational arguments with people. It's like somebody saying, well, I can't see oxygen, therefore it must not exist. (laughs) 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 I don't know. I I actually am not quite sure what to say to people who claim we never landed on the moon. It was all a big hoax. Uh, It's... um, it's the science versus emotion. You, you
0: know what I want to do? I want to write a book my, myself because I, I always, I, I envy authors because I, I, I want to be a writer, but I hate all the paperwork that's involved with it. <laughs> uh, but, but I, I, uh, I was thinking like I would love to put together just the his the the complete history of con- wacky conspiracy theories and just going back to. Like, you know, when people were freaking out about electricity and electric lights, and then there was, of course, uh, Wi-Fi and cell towers, and then there was the satanic panic, uh, and, you know, moving all the way up to, you know, and, and kind of pinpointing, like, where mm-hmm. these started, uh, and then going all the way up to my favorite, uh, QAnon, which is uh, the latest, it's like the universal theory of, uh, field theory of all conspiracy theories, uh, it's it's uh, it's bananas, but uh, the, the the idea that even conspiracy theories need to be sold yeah. and marketed. No, I mean on that would level. you know
2: just as a marketer uh, for you, that would be a fascinating book to research and write because the the mm-hmm. techniques that they use to gain steam and get momentum and start this movement that they do are the same things that marketers do and need to do. Uh, you know, it starts with a little cluster of um, of people, and then it just starts spreading. But the way in which you go about spreading it has to be very thoughtful. And they are masters at this, and I think marketers could could learn a lot by reverse engineering what they do. The ignite phase and in, in the methodology I talk about in the book is all about this.
0: Well, well let's 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 switch gears a little bit uh, because I, I want to talk about specifically the book but what what prompted you to write it to begin with what was your aha moment that you're like you know what i'm just going to push through i'm going to finish this thing and 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 why this particular subject
2: yeah the the aha moment was a phone conversation uh, but and I, which I'll tell you about in one second. But before that, I was running into big problems with my consulting business, because even my most loyal clients who I had known for years, they knew what what made uh, my team and I special in the way we would approach what we did. We were deep experts. We did great work. All those things that we all say about our companies. Um, I was getting pushback from them on my pricing. They wanted me to drop my prices because they kept saying, well, I can go over here and get that person for less and I can get that person for less, et cetera. In the meantime, at the, or at the same time, I was having conversations with my clients where they were trying to convince me that they were unique and different. And I was trying to tell them, no, you aren't. You look and sound like everybody else. This was even my Accenture clients. I said, there is not a single company that doesn't claim to have the best people or the best methodology or have done great work. You know, there's nothing you're saying that's that's um going to set you apart. That's right. So it was it was interesting. And so one day I'm on the phone with one of my subcontractors and she tells me about a colleague of hers, a friend, actually a good friend of hers, who she said was making $50,000 a day, charging, charging $50,000 a day to go in and do very similar work to what we were doing. And she and I both just sat there and marveled at that. And I was, I say in the book, I was simultaneously unbelievably envious and unbelievably inspired. And it clicked for me that, yeah, there are companies out there that somehow manage to command these amazing premiums for what they do. They command amazing attention for what they do. And people flock to them. They seek them out. They don't question them on prices. They don't, these companies don't have to compete for every bit of work they do. How are they doing this? And I looked back at my Accenture experience, and we had done that. We had become the go-to. You know, it's now a multi it's like an eight billion dollar business unit now that we helped build from from the beginning. But at first we were really swimming upstream. We were trying to get into the communications industry at the time. It was a it was a a band of brothers. You know, outsiders were not allowed in. Uh, We really had to fight hard to establish a name and a reputation so that's what kicked off all of this is I really wanted to figure out what is the secret? How do they do it? And that's when I realized well, I want to get
1: I want to get okay. I want to get into those into those secrets in just a minute but I, what I wanted to say is uh having looked at this in the book you you commonly come to this theme of like looking at blocks of decades like blocks of 10 years kind of seems like the theme in in the uh, from what I was seeing Because you talk about the Apollo mission how did this 10 year mission they, they made their moonshot statement and within 10 years accomplished the major goal. Uh, I believe at Accenture you had about 10 years to kind of grow revenues and start every year seeing growth year after year after year. Um, one of the things like, there's a quote that I've heard, I think it comes from Tony Robbins. Um, I'm not 100% sure who the original person was, but it's that most people overestimate what they can do in a year, but they underestimate what they can accomplish in a decade. And just because I saw that decade frame being referenced multiple times, is that is that something that you kind of see is that like, it, it does take like, these big changes happen, but it does take a bit of time to kind of put them together and, and make this. Uh, yeah, it's a so funny.
2: I I never really thought about the ten year chunk, uh, a, a, you mm-hmm. know, being a theme in the book. But yes, you know, especially you know, I'm here in Silicon Valley, and people expect results so quickly. But it's just like uh, some of the quote unquote overnight successes in entertainment. They were anything but. Right. Lady Gaga was out there for a full, well, let's say at least a decade before she really caught fire. Uh, other performers, um, they hone their craft for, for a very long time, very long time, and test what they're doing with audiences and build some rolling thunder out there in the marketplace before everybody else finds out about them. And so, yes, it takes time. And one of the reasons that some of the names that I examine in the book have been around for a while is. A lot of what this is about is what does it take to be sustainable? How do you you know it's a lot of companies are a flash in the pan they have quick success and then they burn out quickly. but what does it take to really last and really uh in especially as the market gets more and more competitive to continue to stand apart from everybody else
1: and to to that point um, one of the things that really struck me in toward the beginning of the book and I, i've I've read like I said I read about I it. Got through about twenty percent of it, it roughly fifteen to twenty percent. But it was that you? You talk about how you had built, developed this Apollo method for corporations, but then you go into this uh, little tangent about how you went back and you looked for its weaknesses. Like you were looking at what was hard for uh, executives to actually apply this, and you started seeking out alternatives that they could they could look at. And, there, and there's, I'm, I'm going to give another quote now, which is uh, I think we could, this is a Mark Cuban quote, I believe. But it was that every day I try to put myself out of business, like roughly paraphrasing. It, it, is that something that you see as one of those keys to sustainability? Because I, again, I didn't finish the whole thing. So I didn't get to the, to the ending here. But um, I, I just found that very interesting. And it was kind of, uh, you didn't really like focus on that in that part of the chapter. But you just casually mentioned that you had done all these things to kind of put yourself out of business. And... Um, so just kind of elaborate on that and let me know what your thought process was behind all that.
2: Yeah, in fact, there's the, the fourth piece of this methodology, the accelerate phase is all about basically looking at yourself from the outside and seeing, you know, where are we weak? Where, what do we need to change? Where How is the market catching up with us? Uh, I, I describe in the book, I have a little short anecdote about sitting in meetings with senior partners at Accenture. At the time, it was a partnership. Now it's a corporate, a public, uh, publicly held company. But you know, they would sit around the room. Now they were making money hand over fist. At least in our business unit, we were growing at enormous rates—twenty-five plus percent per year—with organic growth. And listening to the conversation, you would have thought we were on the verge of going out of business. (laughs) They—they really took hard. Critical looks at how they were running things and wh- where we were weak and what we needed to improve and how the market was catching up or what was going on with competitors and our clients and so forth. And we con- we were in constant strategic planning mode. You know, at least quarterly we revisited the strategy and looked at what we needed to tweak. And nowadays it has to happen even more frequently for some businesses because things are so uh, volatile, especially right now. But it's And I did the same with the Apollo method. I came out with it. um, I started talking to people about it. This was like 20 years ago. And I started looking for what am I not thinking of? And I would have conversations with people and say, you know, rip this to shreds. Tell me tell me what what's weak what's not working one of the things that i discovered going and i mentioned in the book i would go in and out of companies so i went in became a chief marketing officer for a tech company i had underestimated the the power of building a business unit within an existing company versus trying to do something as a essentially as a startup and the the foundation we had to work from in building that business unit at accenture versus starting something from complete scratch and trying to go sell into enterprises when we didn't have a big name behind us like we did at Accenture. Even though- what,
0: what does Accenture do? What do they do? Yeah, I, 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 just for those of us who don't know.
2: Yeah, so Accenture is a large management consulting firm, and it's so big now that it does a lot of things, a lot of outsourcing services. Mm-hmm. But Basically, it's a management consulting firm with a heavy emphasis on using technology to improve company operations and make companies um, operate more efficiently. So at the time I was there, their big specialty was designing and implementing gigantic, complex information systems. So putting in big, uh, you know, uh, it might be installing SAP at a Fortune 50 company, or it may be going into a factory and figuring out how to uh, make it operate more efficiently and where technology could help it. Uh, it might be, like in our case, we, we rebuilt uh, billing systems and customer CRM systems, customer relationship management systems for companies. Uh, nowadays, they do a lot of installation of big CRM systems. So it's a very diverse company, but the main emphasis is using technology to improve the way companies run.
1: Let's, uh, let's go into, I want to kind of switch and get into some of these, the tactics of the Apollo method and how to become this go-to company, because I think a lot of people listening to the show are in that small business boat and they're falling into that commodity trap where, you know, if we're not differentiating ourselves, we are just a um, a me too, a company like you use in the book. So let's kind of dive in a bit into into a few of these uh, different tactics and strategies um, of the Apollo method. And I know that the, the first phase is kind of differentiation. But what, what, can, um, can you talk about that, please?
2: Yeah, the you know, one of the first things you have to do is figure out what market you're really going to focus on and own. A lot of companies are product driven. So they say if they're a solution looking for a problem. We have this product. Now let's go find out who it will fit and who can benefit from it and how we'll sell it to them. So this approach says look, start with a market that you really want to focus on and specialize in, where you will become known and a market that you can own. And to do that, Figure out a problem, or in some cases, it might be an opportunity, but it's more compelling if you can figure out a really common, critical, urgent problem people need to solve in that market. And the smaller you are, the more specific this should be, because otherwise, you're just going to be in there with a bigger pack of competitors, and it's going to be hard to be noticed. So it's, you know, would you rather be a drop of ink in the ocean or a drop of ink in a coffee cup? so that you can be seen and noticed. And small and specific doesn't have, or I should say specific doesn't have to mean small. It can be a very, very specific uh, niche or market, but still be lucrative enough to give you plenty of opportunity to generate huge revenue and profits. And then as you gain traction, you can expand into adjacent markets. But the basic premise is start with a specific market, figure out that problem that you will own, where you will take intellectual ownership for that issue in the market. You will study it. You will be ahead of the curve so that the rest, so that clients and customers know they can look to you to help guide them down that path. And then you figure out a unique approach, a unique solution to that problem. But it's not just a product or service with specific functions and features. It's not a generic capability. It's a solution that delivers some kind of outcome. And this is where and why they'll be willing to pay more for it, because they know they're going to get some kind of result as opposed to just, you know, a capability.
0: In 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 your book, you mentioned that the uh, the the it, the point was to like get to the moon. That was the that was the, f- the focus point, right? And and the way you describe it is that it, even if it is not a direct route, it's not about it's about the creative way of getting there and but keeping your eye on on the ball, if you will. Uh, and, and this is, this is something that I find interesting because I always talk with companies about, uh, you know, really developing the vision statement and the mission statement. Like what, what are we doing here? What's the purpose of this entity besides us, you know, just getting together and, and, you know, jerking around at work, but that's a different story. But, uh, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like, th- this is an important thing. It's, it's, uh, in spiritual practice, it's like setting an intention. So, so you 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 really thought about like launching in the same way that they they achieved the impossible right when they uh did this uh, with the moonshot so what are the what are the other points so once you focus on the goal and you know no matter what happens, we have to get to that goal what what happens from there yeah you
2: know you want to know what your destination is you you know that's the vision is where do we want to end up and you have a market vision for where you see the market going you have a vision for. What, you, what role you want to play in that. You have your point of view, your, your unique approach, and then you uh, declare it. I mean, you know, Kennedy stood up and said, we don't know how we're going to do it, but we are going to put a man on the moon and bring him home. That's our goal. We commit to that. And here's why we feel it's important. Uh, and he, he really got everybody rallied around that. And then from there, you do, and that's what in the methodology is called the launch phase, figuring all of that out. From there, you go into the ignite phase. And this is where your goal is to lead a movement in the market, not so much around your specific product, but around your point of view and what you believe the market needs to be doing. And the reason for doing that is because that's what's going to get people excited. That's co- what's going to make them want to talk about you and pay attention to what it is you're doing. That's if you're a small, if you're an entrepreneur, a small company. That's what's going to get you into the office of somebody who normally wouldn't have give you the time of day. They don't want to hear about somebody's product, but they do want to hear and learn about where things are going what needs to be done about big issues that they're dealing with. So that's the next piece, is leading that movement and building momentum in the marketplace around your point of view. And Mark Benioff did this to great effect with Salesforce. I don't know if you guys remember, but when he first came out, when Salesforce first started, uh, first of all, they weren't necessarily offering something radically new. They basically took Siebel, which was a, a, a CRM, giant at the time, which many people don't even know exists anymore, but they stripped it down. They said, it's gotten too big and complex. It takes millions of dollars and hundreds of consultants to implement a Siebel system. And we need something simpler. So he actually stripped out functionality and Then, um, and made it very simple and easy, and they put it in the cloud so that uh, people could easily access it without all this heavy implementation. But that's not what he got out and started talking about. So they were a Salesforce automation company, but he rarely talked about that. What he did talk about is we need to kill software. That Mm -hmm. was his big mantra. He had it emblazoned with a logo that looked like a Gus, Ghostbusters logo, a big slash across the word software. And I would see him at conferences. He'd stand up in front of everybody. He was the only one who would be still wearing a suit at that time. Uh, he he was brash. He would get booed. He was telling an audience full of software companies <laughs> that <laughs> software has to go. <laughs> you know, and he was he was on a mission. Uh, he really, really passionately believed that we had to get rid of installed, heavily, heavily, heavy, intense, resource-intensive, complicated enterprise software.
1: Yeah. For clarity, I just want to bring up that, uh, in case the, the listeners here, when she says "get rid of software," you're talking about getting rid of the pre-installed, old-fashioned software where it was a huge ordeal to install a CRM system for a company because it was all done manually. Now it's in the cloud and Mark Benioff, in many ways, popularized, I don't know that he gave birth to it, but he popularized the SaaS uh, software as a service industry. And Salesforce was one of the most successful companies to come out of that industry. Um, but I just wanted to bring clarity to that because just in case people listening don't quite understand when you say software is dead. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that's the thing. That's the thing about a point of view is uh, I say you need A, B, C, D, actionable, bold, controversial, and distinctive. So did he literally mean kill software? No. Did he get attention for saying kill software? Yes. So, uh, you know, that was, that was a big uh, part of his success is he was willing to be very controversial and stir up the conversation. So this is a big part of what you need to do. But another piece that a lot of people don't realize or or underestimate is the the role of power brokers in helping you really get, um, get a foothold in your market. So every industry, every sector has just a handful of people who seem to know everybody in that industry. And they have tentacles out to everybody who matters. In that industry. And so a big strategy that I talk about in the book is getting those power brokers on board with your point of view. Now, they may, may or may not be uh, willing to pitch your product or your offering or your solution, but it doesn't really matter. What you want is to get that moment, that movement going and be associated with as, the, uh, as being a leader in that movement. And these power brokers can be critical for doing that. And again, even if you're a nobody, if you have a really, really provocative and valuable perspective on what's happening in the market and what companies need to be doing about it, people will listen to you all day long. So that's a key part of that strategy. And, uh, you know, media plays into that. Events play into that. They are part of the power broker structure in many sectors, uh, but it can also boil down to some key individuals. You see this a lot in Silicon Valley. So, and again, you know, that was actually part of Mark Benioff's success. They struggled like anybody else, but, you know, he had Larry Ellison. He had relations. Larry Ellison was a mentor. Steve Jobs was a mentor. You know, he had access to some very, very uh, important uh, power brokers and, and influencers in that space.
0: So, so what, what, how, how is like, cause one of the things that I've noticed, especially, and I think you addressed this a little bit about it, uh, this in the book is that there's so much noise out there, right? There's so much noise with people, uh, you know, wanting to be the, like, Oh, I do this and I do this too. And, you know, as you say, the, the me too people, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, so so what are the the kinds of strategies, especially in this day and age, that you think is best to in order for you to stick out and really differentiate yourself so people go, Yeah, I have to work with that person no matter how much it costs.
1: And let's use marketing as an example, because marketing is like an overarching broad field. So let's just say like someone has a marketing company.
2: Well, the that's a perfect example because I tell you. I have yet to see a digital marketing company look different. You know, and the problem is they all focus on capabilities. So whenever I hear a company, even if I hear somebody say, our, our capabilities presentation, you know, for introducing themselves to clients, kill it, kill it. You know, nobody cares about your capabilities. That's a ticket to entry. What you need is that point of view about what companies are struggling with and what they need to be doing about it. And pick a specialty, you know, narrow down and pick a particular problem or challenge that they're running into in a particular market. And um, and rather than be a generalist that can can help any kind of company. Uh, If you have a broad set of services that you're offering, then go with a narrow market. If you are targeting a broad market, go with a narrow set of offerings uh, that focuses on a particular uh, dimension of what it is. But I find it more valuable to um, pick the market. And then be a specialist in that market, because every market has its own vernacular, has its own culture, has its um they talk to each other, they spread ideas with amongst each other, and so you'll often get more traction if you um, pick a market that is tightly knit and so for example, I think I even have in the book you know the difference between a digital marketing firm that says we run um, great email, or we can run your email campaigns. We can write your copy. We can um, uh, you know, uh, help you manage your, your list versus saying we can improve your conversion rate by 10 to 20% within six months. Mm, or so Outcome-based. <laughs> out, total results-oriented results oriented. And we have a process for doing that. And the value of that is it helps people visualize how it is you're going to do this, how, what's involved. And it sets you apart from people who just get in and start talking about generic uh, offerings. You can think of a law analogy, law firms, um, a generic law firm that just has lawyers doing whatever versus like, let's say you get a DUI, who are you going to hire? The lawyer, the generalist lawyers who just did a contract yesterday and just uh, helped somebody close on a piece of real estate the day before that? Or are you going to pick the lawyer who's gotten 35 people out of their DUI with no jail time, a minimal fine, and community service?
1: You know my lawyer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. in in the book um you have you have a lot of interactive kind of uh supplements including like quizzes that you could take to kind of see whether or not you are already a go-to in your industry and i have a feeling a lot of people will fail that test though i will tell you that when yeah, they first take it anyway I so. um but I, I took that i took that first test on whether or not i'm a go-to and, and it's interesting because some of the things that kind of came out of that were just me kind of reflecting on on certain uh certain things but like when i got started I used to give a lot of talks in the local community. And sometimes I would talk about social media, sometimes I'd talk about this. But to this day, sometimes people think of me and they think of me as like a social media guy, but I really don't barely even touch that stuff. <laughs> I mean, I'm uh, I'm focused on like email copywriting and podcasting and that's about it. And so it's just kind of interesting how um, it's like, okay, I need to do a better job of rebranding myself or positioning myself so that when, when people think about me, they know for sure exactly what I do, exactly what value I provide. And so that's uh, that's something that that after reading this, it's something that I've, I mean, I've been thinking about this kind of anyway, but this kind of reinforced that. And it's something I'm definitely going to be focusing on is kind of reestablishing my core expertise and make sure that I'm known for what I want to be known as. Um, one question I did want to ask you was, what do you think is behind the reason that so many companies are afraid to uh to niche down or narrow down do you think that just comes from like a fear of missing out like a scarcity based mentality or what what is uh what's your take on that
2: yeah it's very scary i i actually had to be i I, i'm a convert i didn't start out seeing this myself and i remember actually the moment i read an article i think it was ink magazine or something and this was many years ago and um uh God, what's his name? Gross is his last name, but he has an incubator and has started many, many comp- companies. And uh, he's g- uh, kind of a, a VC type of guy. And he was quoted in the article saying he had read a book called Focus by Al Reese and Jack Trout, and it had changed his mind. And I read that book and realized, oh, yes. Uh, so if anybody doesn't believe in the power of focus, I'd say read that book. Its title is focus and they make a very strong case for the power of focusing. But the fact is it's just too hard to be noticed when you're when you're too broad and you get traction a lot more quickly. And focusing doesn't mean you can't later broaden. It means Mm -hmm. you have to start out with with Jeffrey Moore and the cat crossing the chasm and others refer to it as a beachhead. So you really where can you get traction first? And then you can broaden from there to figure out, uh, you know, after that, you can figure out what markets you move into. And I have that section in the book that talks about market selection to help you figure out what that might be. And then where, where you broaden from there.
1: In that section, because you mentioned like Facebook started out as Harvard EDU email addresses only, then broadened out to, I think it was Ivy League schools, then right. to like the general colleges, and then to everybody. I mean, even Amazon started out as a bookstore, basically.
0: That's right, <laughs> Over That's time.
1: Yeah, over time became the ultimate bookstore, but then broadened out slowly, but surely. And now does a little bit of everything you can even imagine <laughs> with the, like yeah. cloud based and video and all that. And uh, so that, yeah, it, it's a so kind of you want to find a profitable, but like more broad niche that you can kind of become the master in and that as you kind of become as you master that, then you start taking on other fields. Am I saying that kind of?
0: correct?
2: That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, startups in Silicon Valley are constantly being told, you know, you're trying to tackle too much, you're trying to go too broad, you got to, you've got to focus. You you have limited resources, limited money, the market has limited capacity to absorb new uh, players and take them in, and you're just not going to get noticed. So if you look back almost I can't really think of a company that started out broadly. If you look at successful companies, they all started with something very specific and narrow. Oracle was just a relational database company in the beginning. Apple started with one product. You know, these broader visions came along later. So even if you do have a broader vision, you start out narrow. Nest had a big vision for what it wanted to do to. Make unloved objects in the home loved with um, connect by connecting them. But they started with just a thermostat, so you they all start with something very narrow. And and those I think one of the reasons why a lot of professional services companies go so broad is because they're just they just want business and they say, oh, you want that? Yeah, sure, we can do that. You know, the barriers to executing aren't that high. So let's say with marketing services. A lot of the skills you need to do email campaigns are the same skills you need to write ad copy or the same skills you need to put together marketing collateral. So they end up doing all of it. Um, And that's okay. But then narrow down the market you're serving.
0: So how do you how do you do that? I mean like cuz you know if if let's say that you're you are providing a service that everyone is providing and you're just more noise, right? How how would you go through a process to niche down and find that specific thing that in order to be able to charge that premium?
2: This is where you really try to figure out what problem. This is where you turn away from yourself and you look outside to the market and say, what problem do we really want to specialize in? Where, first of all, what problems are nobody else solving? Don't go after things everybody other people have already mastered and have a huge amount of traction in, unless you have some really unless there's still some issue. Like Mark Benioff said, Yeah, CRM, they have great products out there, but they're impossible to put in. So problem I'm going to solve is I'm going to make it easy. Uh, you know, you flip the switch and boom, your salespeople are capturing their data, which wasn't possible before. Uh, but even with a marketing firm, you say, you know, you could look at, I have a process in the book for market selection. It starts with, yes, you can not first, you look at your unique strengths. You know, what are your, your core competencies and your distinctive competencies. Where where are you really good at what you do and maybe better at what other people do? Then then you look at the market and you say, what, what is the market dealing with? What problems are they facing? What Where does the market have needs? And what's the overlap? What's the Venn diagram overlap of those two things? So what we're really good at, we're, we're uniquely good at, and what the market needs, then you have a subset of where the overlap is. Then you start eliminating. Eliminate what other people are also good at. Eliminate where there just isn't that much demand, where the market just isn't big enough. Eliminate poor fits. Maybe their value system is totally opposite yours. And then you get down to a more narrow set of potential markets or or um, sectors or problems. And then you can figure out where you think you can really get some traction, where you have a strong vision for what they need to be doing. And then I suggest that you draw a dartboard of your target Mm -hmm. markets and start out with with that core bullseye is going to be where you really want to get traction. And then the rings going out from there, the additional adjacent markets you can expand into as you gain traction in subsequent sectors.
1: So let's uh, we're, we're getting a little bit towards the end here. So let's spend a little bit of time just going over the broad overarching Apollo method. We've, we've already kind of covered the launch phase, I think, um, a mm-hmm. fair amount. But let, let's talk a little about the other phases. So it's launch, ignite, navigate, accelerate are the four different phases of the Apollo method. Can you give a bit of an overarching, uh, short, condensed, very uh-huh. condensed version here so that we have, give the listeners an idea, like a preview of what to expect in the book too?
2: So as you've, you've, with launch, you've decided what you want to mean and what you want to own in the market, what problem you're going to specialize in and what your unique approach is. With Ignite, we talked about how you're going to go out and lead a movement in the market around that point of view and unique approach. With Navigate, and you're actually in Ignite going to also start having conversations with prospective customers, the types of innovators who are willing to try something new because they want to be ahead of the market with navigate that's where you operationalize all of this you walk your talk you navigate customers along the journey to achieving the results that you promise with your solution so this is product or solution development this is sales and marketing you build a community of believers in the market around your point of view around your point of view and your and also hopefully your offering and you actually deliver results out in the market With Accelerate, this is where you're watching your back. Even if you start out completely unique, others are going to, of course, copy you and get into the space. And so you want to be paying attention to what they're doing and how you can stay ahead of everybody else. And then, of course, the market is changing around you as well, and you want to see what you need to do to adjust and change for the future. And then it just becomes a big cycle all over again. You're constantly cycling through the phases. I also talk in the book about how you—you know—not all of it's going to be sequential. I present it in sequential fashion, but realistically, some of these things might be happening concurrently, or some that are later in the cycle happen before others that are earlier in the cycle. Uh, it depends on your circumstances.
1: You talk about too that, like, as your company grows and you start seeing an increase in your profits. That's when you should kind of double down and invest your profits back into innovation and research and growth. Right. And so, can you talk a little bit about that? Because, so you want to be essentially reinvesting that money and continually innovating. I mean, is that one of the keys that you're seeing are the companies that are just constantly innovating are the ones that are obviously going to thrive?
2: Absolutely. I mean, our world just changes way too fast, especially nowadays. Every day, something new, something different, something more advanced than what you've been working on. So you have to stay ahead. Uh, Even individuals, even one-off freelancers have to invest. I mean, and they do it instinctively. They listen to podcasts, they read articles, they're trying. To watch where the technology is going, that's all part of that process. But um, they're investing time, which is money. So they're already doing it. But when you don't have any margins to spare, and this is a big, this is a big reason for the whole methodology, is too many companies are operating with such thin gross margins. Meaning the difference between what they can charge for their offering versus what it costs them pro- to provide it, it leads not, it leaves nothing for. Marketing for R and D for uh, expanding into new markets—all those things that cost money that isn't going to deliver results or profits or even any revenue right away. So, the higher your margins, the more you have to invest in your future and continue to grow. Yeah,
1: I always think of Apple as like the classic example of go-to in my mind, and you do mention them in the book as well. But like to me, it's just like Apple is that company that like i just they've positioned themselves so well especially when steve jobs was uh, as far as the innovation side goes i feel like steve jobs had that better i think tim cook does possibly a better job with the profit side <laughs> but um but from the innovation side when steve jobs was in charge man like every time that they released a new product i was excited and i was i was happy to pay a premium on their products because of the way that they positioned themselves because of the way that all of that um was came together and so like i, I think that's like the perfect, uh, for me, that's like a great, that's like an easy metaphor for me when I'm reading your book is kind of like, okay, yeah, this is like just what kind of Steve Jobs was doing with Apple. Because again, like there's not a lot of companies where I'll pay extra money for something, but that is one of the companies where I would do that without even thinking about it.
2: Exactly. And the iPhone was kind of a moon moon analogy because they did they didn't say how can we incrementally improve existing cell phones. They said what should us they just threw the old paradigm away and they said, you know, let's look way out. What what should we actually have? We should have a computer in our pocket or a phone that we love. Mm-hmm. And they just rethought the whole thing. And so it was very much like Kennedy saying, forget all these little incremental accomplishments in space. What's the grand accomplishment that will really clearly demonstrate leadership? And Steve Jobs did the same thing. He didn't even, he didn't even actually want to get into the phone business. He had to be convinced by his team that it was the right thing to do. And then once he was on board, he was all over it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Cause you're right. You said something that uh, uh, I totally believe, which is we are, we are definitely in, in a time of like constant change. And it's, it's, for instance, I, I, I was reading this uh, article that uh, that I found completely fascinating as soon as, as soon as the pandemic hit uh the scramble for um the PPE was uh, enormous and so and toilet paper the- and toilet paper too and toilet paper but <laughs> uh all these all these businesses sprung up overnight where people were were trying to make deals happen from suppliers in uh China and so you would have People who would talk to a guy who would know a guy who would know a guy who was in the factory where they were making the PPE. And so and everyone was getting their cut. And that's why, you know, masks for a second were like seven uh you know, seven dollars a mask, uh, which which is ridiculous. Which which leads me to a big question that I have. You know, in in my mind, the defeating COVID is like the moonshot, right? And when that happened, there was, a, there was a part of me that's like, wow, is this the moment when the world comes together and says, you know what, nobody's going anywhere, we're all in this together, and we've got to deal with this thing. And uh, I thought this is the moment that 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 we're going to put our differences aside and we're going to rise. No, no, no. We're just a bunch of. monkeys. It's like that Bill that Bill Pullman
1: speech in Independence Day, like that speech. I thought that was going
0: to happen, <laughs> and uh, and 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 that has it. So what what I'd like to do is I'd like to I'd like to ask you if if there what advice would you give anybody in charge right now about how to employ this. Methodology, like the moonshot to say, solving COVID at this moment. Go. <laughs> Solve all the problems.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, it does start with a unifying vision. And that's something that we desperately need. You see this in companies as well. So we shouldn't be working against each other. We all, with the moon, with the moonshot, with Kennedy's moonshot. All the resources of the country unified around this goal. So setting the goal of saying, look, we can't fix, we cannot beat COVID in three months. We can't beat it in six months, but we could beat it in a year. And here's what it will take to do that. So Mm -hmm. the problem is we've got this virus that's spreading like crazy. We've got a social society we may not be able to stomp it out overnight. We missed that opportunity if we ever had it in the first place, but here's when we can do it. So you set out, give people a horizon to look out on and then tell them, here's what it's going to take to do that. You map out the, the, the path to getting there so that everybody can see it and they understand the necessity for all the different steps that have to happen in between. And with the moonshot, for example, we had multiple missions uh, in space prior to Apollo 11, right? It was number 11. It wasn't the, they changed some of the numbering along the way. But the point is they had multiple missions leading up to getting a man on the moon, but there were steps that occurred in the process and people need to understand what that path is, what steps are going to have, have to happen in between and keep everybody together, politicizing aspects of the of the goal is counterproductive. So they didn't do that with the moonshot. Everybody had one goal. It didn't matter whether you were a Democrat or Republican or what your political, your personal views or social views were. What mattered is we all wanted to get there together and we were all in it together.
1: And I think from like a 50,000 point view, like everybody wants to get through COVID. They want their kids back in school. They want to get back to some level of normalcy. Uh, and then what happens is we come down from that 50,000-point view, and then some people are like, well, what about masks? Well, what about uh, what about vaccines? What about this? And then that's where, like, politics all of a sudden get interjected into the conversation, and then we have all this separation is what I'm seeing. So it's like getting back to that 50,000-foot view of,
0: right. well, here's where
1: we all are on the same page. Let's start there and then go <laughs> move forward.
2: Keep, it, keep everybody focused on the common goal, the common outcome. And understanding what it what it's going to take to get there and why. So with the U.S., it took enormous amounts of money that got pulled from other budgets and other other things that we could be investing in. But everybody, people supported it because they understood why we were going to the moon. We weren't doing it just for the fun of it. There was this Cold War happening. People were genuinely scared on a day to day basis that somebody could, you know, that a nuclear war could start at any moment. Um, then what if what if this is all the thinking at the time but you know oh if the soviets beat us what if they turned space into a war zone no we want to make sure that we demonstrate that we're all in we want freedom in space so they there was a bigger purpose behind it that kept everybody unified and that's what we're missing today
0: yeah so what what what, uh, what do you think uh two things what's the vibe in the Valley right now? Right. And, and what do you think is, do you think that technology can help this? Like, wh- what do you see, especially this new technologies that are about to be introduced with augmented uh, what do you see? Brain the future? Ships. Yeah. What, what, and based on, on who, you know, and what people are doing, what do you see the future kind of going uh, like in the next, say five years, five, 10
2: well the valley is perpetually optimistic because there you know there's always it's always a good time to start a business. I mean down mm-hmm. you know times like this are great times to start a business because you you know you need time anyway to get some traction going. So while the market's a little quiet it gives you time in the background to be doing your R&D and experimentation and so forth. So uh, now it's it's not always a good time to get funding, so that's a different story. But if you can bootstrap it or or make your dollars go as far as possible for as long as possible, uh, you're in good shape. So I think you know there's always a fairly optimistic mood. VCs might have a different perspective because it depends on how much money they're making for their investors at any given time. But there's always an appetite for innovation, and there's a big emphasis on. Uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, making good use of data—all of this is related. Uh, cloud technologies that make it easier for companies to operate in the cloud uh, to reduce their their infrastructure expenses. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with commercial real estate because Silicon yeah. Valley has traditionally, ironically enough, been a physically oriented. Environment, people mm-hmm. working in offices and going into the office every day and face to face meetings and so forth. And some companies now are going fully virtual, even potentially past the pandemic. So that's going to be interesting.
1: It'll be very interesting because of the costs. And like you're talking about, like yeah. Yeah, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, New York, if you can run those businesses without having to pay those astronomical rents or even if, or mortgage, whatever, if you own the building. I mean that's a, that's a huge savings for the company. So I I, I am bearish on the commercial real estate market. Uh, I, I'm not I'm not quite sure where the personal real estate or consumer real estate market's going, but the the commercial one I think is in trouble for at least the short run.
2: It'll be interesting, It'll be very yeah. interesting. Also, the access to talent. So you know, a lot of people can't afford to live here, don't want to come, spend what it takes to live here, uh, but now. Companies will have access to talent anywhere. Now, of course, that puts everybody in competition with everybody. For jobs, sure. yeah. it puts companies in competition with everybody. If you're going virtual, now you're competing. A marketing services firm is competing with every other marketing services firm on the planet.
0: So even more important to like you know find your specific uh, niche. And it's it's interesting because you know really when you boil down uh, a lot of of what your book goes over. It it's it's something that is a reoccurring theme here, which is uh, today's marketing is really about being uh, personal, authentic, uh, being you know having uh, uh, authenticity and uh, transparency with uh, with what you're doing, uh, being in integrity, and uh, and and then of course finding your tribe, and that's it's like those are the basics of, of all of it. It seems like nowadays. So, uh, wow. Well, thank you so much. And where where can people find the book? Where can people find you? The book is on
2: Amazon and other online retailers, uh, but Amazon's easy. You can just put in Teresa Lina and be the Uh, go-to. ApolloMethod.com is the website that supports the book. It's www.apollomethod.com, and it contains also a lot of the tools that are in the book that you can download and use to try to do even small improvements. Even implementing a little bit of this could make an immediate difference in your profit margins, uh, which will make all the difference in your business. So I'm really concerned about businesses, especially in this environment if yeah. they aren't differentiated we are going to see a bloodbath so it's really imperative it was coincidence that this book came out right in the midst of the pandemic but i think the timing is actually great because this is going to be a huge huge problem even more of a problem for companies than what we saw before the pandemic so i do hope people will get the book they can they they don't need me they don't need a course from me they can implement just based on what i put it all in the book so that you can do it on your own if you need to and I hope people will take advantage of it as a resource
0: yeah well uh, thank you so much uh, for that and and we'll definitely um, you know yeah definitely get the book it's uh it, it's it's really interesting how you bring history and uh, and marketing kind of together in this very unique way but before we go we we always like to um find out what our guests are geeky about that doesn't necessarily have to do with anything that you're doing right now. It's, it's a TV show, book, movie, record album, game, video game. What do you, what do you, what's, (laughs) are are you a gamer? (laughs) I'm kidding.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Actually I'm not a gamer. I'm a sailor. So I'm a total geek when it comes to all things boats, Uh, particularly sailboats. I own a sailboat in Sausalito I sail on the bay a lot and I'm a total nerd when it comes to uh, boat maintenance, engines, uh, sails you name it. And then I also, just talking about TV shows, I recently watched Halt and Catch Fire. Have you guys ever seen that yes. series? I'm familiar, I'm familiar with it. was it. It it. Oh my not God, serious. you have to watch it. It's so good. It's actually incredibly historically accurate uh, in, in the way it's captures what happened in Silicon Valley in the eighties and nineties with uh, particularly the advent of personal computing and the internet. So it's a really great show. It's it's a definitely binge worthy and quite, uh, quite accurate. I was surprised at how, what a good job they did.
0: Yeah, definitely. uh, I I would definitely love to to check that out. Uh, Justin, what do you got going? Not, not too much. I just watched the movie, the, the black effect which is
1: about David Black, if I'm pronouncing his last name right, he was the quote-unquote king of biotech companies that just uh, ended up going to prison for manipulating stock prices and, and having a fallout. It was, uh, it was okay. It was, uh, he, he's not the sharpest guy from watching that documentary, so I think he kind of got lucky in the beginning. And uh, it, was, it was interesting, though. I'm, always, I'm, I'm pretty much just watching documentaries these days. I haven't watched a lot of uh, actual movies for a while. Actually, wait, wait a minute. Hold on. I did watch Bill and Ted Three. I forgot. I forgot all okay. about it. Well, I, I think, forgot all about it. I gotta bring it up. Bill and Ted no, Three. I paid I paid twenty-five dollars just to watch that one movie.
0: Yeah, don't say a word, because <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna do a full review. I'm gonna watch it and then we're gonna do a full special review of Bill and Ted. Uh, but, it was so uh, memorable, I forgot about it till right then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I, uh, my wife convinced me to watch uh, Ricky Gervais in Afterlife, which is surprisingly mm. good. Uh, so uh, he, he surprised me because I didn't expect Ricky Gervais to be a good actor. He's, he nails it. He, he has a lot of emotion. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the show I also recommended called Fleabag, on uh, Amazon, which was one of my favorite shows of the year, so uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's very poignant. It's about a guy who dies, and uh, Ricky Gervais, his his wife dies, and he's just living in grief, and he decides that he's he's going to either kill himself or just be a complete asshole to everybody uh, because he doesn't care, you know. And uh, so he feels like he has this superpower, and it's very it's very funny, uh, very British humor, but. Highly recommended afterlife on uh, Netflix, so that's my geek thing of the week. So uh, Teresa, uh, Lima, everybody, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so pleasure for having me. It was really fun. so how uh, how are you doing? well
1: i'm I'm doing really well, especially after watching Bill and Ted. After a couple days ago, like I was alluding to, and let me tell you exactly what happens at the end of bill and Ted. Cause it's going to blow your mind.
0: Oh, no, I no, <laughs> No, I, I'm not, I got my fingers in my ears. I'm not listening to you. So, uh, it's, it's definitely one, uh, that I'm going to get, but, uh, I'm, uh, I, I, buddy <laughs> got tickets for the IMAX. Bill and Ted, Bill and Ted, right? The IMAX. No, I'm going go to see Ted on Tuesday. I'm going, I, I'm, I'm, jealous. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. Anyway, uh, one final thing. I I want to encourage everyone to go to our LinkedIn page, and start following us on LinkedIn. We're going to be posting uh, episodes and uh, some live stuff. It looks like LinkedIn so, in Live. You got access. That's you right. Access. We're going to be. You, you we're broke. Gonna, we're going to be. You broke through. You broke through. I broke through, man. I had to pay off some people and hold hold the child hostage yeah. that was it's like
1: uh that was a it's crit- like when, cyan, when scientology got tax-exempt status you just blackmail like half the company half the irs and then you get tax-exempt status same kind of thing or
0: pretty much <laughs> pretty much so uh yeah just let's let's just say that there's pictures of me at linkedin <laughs> and uh they're like don't ever let this guy come anywhere near the building again but, but uh wait, keep his access current though yeah exactly or else. So uh, with that, ladies and gentlemen, another fine episode of the Marketing Geeks comes to a close. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's all there is to that. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, stay classy. Marketing Geeks Come on, bring your friends. We'll learn marketing from distant lands. I'm and Justin will back the fun. Will never end. It's marketing Geeks. Marketing gigs.